The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the second chapter. In those days, a decree went out from Caesarea Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and lied him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Today, my Aunt Vicky said the words that Christmas is the introduction to Easter. And I thought that was really poignant. And so I'm going to start the sermon today in something that might be a little out of season, but is still nonetheless true. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Christ is indeed risen. Hallelujah. Amen. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To the oppressed, they are freed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Our Lord Jesus Christ once read these same words from the Isaiah scroll in a synagogue in His hometown of Nazareth. Jesus was announcing to the world that he was beginning the work of making all things right again. He was making a new heaven and a new earth where the blind see, the oppressed are freed, and the poor are uplifted. This is indeed the year of the Lord's favor. And Christmas is the day when that favor is proclaimed unto you, because Christmas is the day that God says you are worth it. The town of Bethlehem is about seven miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. What was was once originally a small town marked with clusters of shepherds feeding their flocks just outside its borders is now a slightly more modern city still marked by clusters of shepherds feeding their flocks outside of the borders of the city. It's amazing to see how much has changed in 2,000 years and also how much looks almost exactly the same. This past summer, my wife and I had an opportunity to visit the Holy Land as part of a class for seminary. On our first full day in the country, we went to the city of Bethlehem. And and the first stop that we made on this first day was to a place called the Herodian. 
Now, for those of you who don't know, the Herodian is a massive fort built by King Herod the Great, the king who was king when Jesus was born that tried to kill him, that King Herod. You might be asking yourself, why would a king need a massive fort in the borders of his own country? This is a good question. It's because pretty much everybody hated Herod. Nobody liked him that much, and it's really because he didn't belong to any specific people group. He was an Edomite who was put in power by the Romans. So Herod was a king over the Jews who wasn't Jewish, and a king under the Romans who wasn't really that Roman. So he gained power by making the right allies and friends and by being cunning and conniving with both those friends and with his enemies. So he had these enemies outside of Israel that wanted to invade his country and take him out of power, and he also had a lot of people who wanted to rebel against him within his own country, his own people. So he built these forts, several of them around the country, to escape to in case there was ever an invasion or a revolt. And actually, several times there was, and he had to use these forts. And although Herod built several of these magnificent forts, none was greater than the Herodian. To make this fort, Herod literally had to move a mountain. I know that sounds like hyperbole, but he actually moved a mountain to build the fort. He had slaves and paid workers dig up the dirt of a hill and put all the dirt from that hill onto another hill to make that hill twice as big. This fort was nearly impenetrable because of the way it was designed. The walls were sheer cliff sides, so you couldn't climb up to get to it. It was a beautifully made fort, so secure. And on the inside of the fort, there are frescoes painted by the best painters in all of Israel. There are mosaics from the best artisans and craftsmen at the time. There was a large bathhouse unlike any other in its day. There was a parade ground that Herod put in for his funeral. He wanted his funeral to be a big bash, so he put in a place where chariots could ride around, blowing trumpets, singing the praises of all that he did when he was alive. He even had a pool put in to this fort which is particularly amazing when you consider that it's built on the edge of a desert. So they had to find a way to trap that water and bring it in. There was also a 400-person amphitheater in the middle of the fort, just because. That's what he did. <laughs> this fort was so splendid and so magnificent that when Marcus Agrippa, the second-in-command of all of Rome, came to visit the territories that Rome had conquered, Herod took him to this fort because he thought it was the best thing that Israel had to offer. And by all accounts, Marcus Agrippa was actually very impressed. And this is a man who saw everything in Rome. It is the only place that Herod named after himself. And it is the only place that he chose to be buried. Sitting just a couple miles off the base of the Herodian is the town of Bethlehem. From the citadel of the fort, you can still see perfectly in its entirety the city of David. And even now, from the top of the mountain on which the Herodian sits, the town of Bethlehem looks meek and humble. 
The modern buildings and electronic advertisements have done very little to shock or impress, especially when you consider the magnificent feat of architecture and engineering that leers over the city that is the Herodian. I would have to imagine that on the first Christmas night, this feeling was only multiplied. A simple town, mostly known for the shepherds who graze in its fields just beyond its borders. Just after we visited the glitz and the grandeur of the Herodian, we went to the humble city of Bethlehem. We walked its streets until we got to, of all places, Christmas Lutheran Church in the city of Bethlehem. Now underneath this church, they had recently discovered a cave. They were doing some construction and they found a cave. They drilled down into it and they found first century artifacts in it. So they know that people were living in this cave at the time that Jesus was born. Now this isn't the actual cave where Jesus was born. That's about a mile away from this cave. But this cave looks almost exactly like what it would have looked like on the night that Jesus was born. It's untouched by the gold and silver plating and ornaments and the hangings of the saints and the tapestries that are in the actual cave where Jesus is believed to be born. When you walk into this cave, the humbleness of our Lord's birth has never been more striking. Our Lord, the King of creation, chose to be born in a cave smaller than most people's bedrooms. At the base of the wall of one of, one of the walls of the cave, there was a little part that was dug out at the base of the wall. This was the manger. It would have been filled with itchy hay, and it would have been situated close enough to the animals that they could have easy access to it. And keep in mind, this is a cave, so the animals weren't getting out to go to the restroom. Our Lord laid on itchy hay next to where animals were defecating, covered in flies, covered in mud, and smelly and stinking from a full day's work. Think about that. In a humble manger, in a humble cave, in a humble city, lay the king of the universe. Now, why have I told you all of this? What is the connection between a magnificent, glamorous fort and a lowly cave manger? Well, I want you to try and imagine the larger message that's being sent by these two places. You see, humans left to their own devices will try to elevate themselves. We make glorious homes. We do marvelous works. We try to impress the most important people in our life. And we try to build a legacy to be remembered by. Quite often, it is our most burning desire to gain power and status and to build ourselves up. Sometimes we go so far as to physically build ourselves up, like Herod did when he moved a mountain to build the Herodian. But you see, Herod and the Herodian are everything that the world tells you is important. They're everything that the world tells us to do. Build yourself up enough that you can be above the mess of the world that's below you. Become rich and powerful enough so that you can solve all your problems for yourself. 
If you have enough money and enough power, you can do it all yourself. Essentially, we try to overcome the effects of sin ourselves by leaping up towards God. However, Herod's frescoes are faded. His mosaics are crumbling. His bathhouse is now an empty husk of a room. His pool is bone dry. It hasn't seen water in probably hundreds of years. And his amphitheater is in such disrepair that it's hardly recognizable as such. You can try to jump up to God. You can try to build a mountain. You can try to work your way up to him as much as you want. But the sinful world will always reach up, grab you by the heel, and pull you back down. There is just no escape. But God, in his bountiful mercy, chose to save us in a very different way. He could have very easily created some sort of a works righteousness plan that allowed us to slowly elevate ourselves up to his level in heaven by our good works, but he didn't do that. God could have made it so that he just reached down and picked us up out of our mess, kept his hands clean, didn't have to worry that much about it, but he didn't do that. He could have made it so that the successful among us and the rich among us, they can get into heaven and all those messy, poor failures, they can kind of just be kicked to hell, forgotten forever. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that at all. God did something very different. He stooped down to our level and he dwelt among us. God got his hands dirty and he gave up the high place for you. He allowed himself to be humbled and humiliated so that we could finally be elevated, truly elevated. God knew there was no system of works that would ever allow us to reach up to him. Our very nature is wholly opposed to his own. He is good and pure and perfect, and we are horrible and sinful and stained. The only way that we could ever hope to overcome this sinful and painful world was to have our Savior, who is deserving of only the Most High and good and great things of this earth, humble himself and be born amongst the humblest accommodations of a cave in a manger. Now, you heard me say at the beginning of this sermon that Christmas is the day that God says that you are worth it. And this is what I mean. When God became a human baby, he lost out on the splendor of heaven, and you were worth it. When God took on our flesh, he lost out on perfection, and you were worth it. When Jesus took on our flesh, he felt pain and grief and sadness. He lost loved ones. He lost friends. He lost his father. And he said that you were worth it. When Jesus took on our flesh, his holy and precious name that is perfect was slandered and lied about, and you were worth it. When Jesus took on our flesh, he was slapped in the face and spat on by sinners, 
and you were worth it. When Jesus took on our flesh, he was betrayed by one of his closest friends, abandoned by the rest of them, abandoned by our Heavenly Father, and left naked and in pain alone to die on the cross, and you were absolutely worth it. But why were you worth it? Was it anything you did? Was there anything redeemable or admirable about you? Was it your big fort or your mosaics, your important friends or your power? No. No, it was not. Christ alone deemed you worth it when he chose to willingly humble himself and to get down in the mud with you when he absolutely and unequivocally did not have to. Christ alone has made you worth it because of his tremendous and terrific love for you, because of his willingness to take on your mess and your mistakes for you on your behalf. I want to leave you with one final thought. The cave where Jesus was born, wondrous as it might be, is not the most important cave in the entire world. In fact, it's not even the most important cave in a 10-mile radius. Because seven miles away, in the city of Jerusalem, there is another cave. A cave where Jesus entered even more humbly. A cave with no shepherds. A cave with no angels. A cave that didn't have any wise men. And a cave with no gifts waiting for him. In the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, our Lord entered the last cave that he would ever go into, limp and lifeless. His beaten and bruised body was cut deep to the bone. His precious and innocent body was almost unrecognizable because of the torture and pain that it had suffered. And his body was dragged into a cave even smaller than the one that he was born in. And with his dead body followed death itself. And Satan and this sinful world laughed, thinking that they had won. And for two days, all hope for humanity seemed totally crushed. But on the morning of that third day, our Lord's lifeless body opened its eyes and began to move. And just as easily as our Lord shed the wrappings that he was buried in, you and I shed the punishment of eternal separation from God and eternal death. When his still open wounds were healed, your physical and spiritual wounds were healed as well. And when he walked out of that tomb, he walked right into perfect, eternal life. And because of baptism and God's grace, we all follow him right out of the tomb, step for step, clinging to his robe, right behind him. One day soon, we will all pass away. And immediately, we will see the still scarred hands of our Lord. We will see the thorn-pierced head. We can still feel the ridges on his back from where it's scarred over 
where he was whipped for our sins. And he will embrace our mess one more time in a big hug. And he'll look at us and he'll smile and he'll say this, you, my dear child, you were worth it. Amen.